Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Lurie. I'm a sex-positive psychotherapist, and my co-host is Sunny Megatron, an award-winning sex educator. This is our final episode of season one, so we thought we would do a recap of the previous year and then explain the plan for the new season. But first, I must remind you that Open Deeply podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. Please know this episode may reference heavy emotional content from past episodes. If you catch yourself becoming overwhelmed, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK-8255. All right. Well, Sunny, it's interesting to think about just the whole progression. And I guess first we should talk about why we're doing this episode, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wish if, if our listeners could be a fly on the wall, we kind of went back and forth. Like, is this the last episode of season one? Is it a new beginning, the first episode of season two? And I guess we've decided it's the last episode of season one, but really, because we had to put it somewhere, but really it's a transition it's kind of the you know 1.5 the space in between one and two it's it's the handoff that little place in the middle yeah and the reason we couldn't just start with the next season is because the next season is going to be in a lot of ways totally different but very much Mm -hmm. a progression from the first season the first season my original intention was to really have it be an inspirational season, you know, to to be a very inspirational podcast. Um, And so we brought on a whole bunch of social justice guests. Almost every guest had some kind of social justice Mm -hmm. bent. Um, But what we found out was that a lot of these social justice guests, they they had very hard childhoods. And a lot of times they leaned on that part and then would tell us about the inspirational, amazing stuff they were doing on the tail end, you know, and so it gave us this big we just started started to see the common threads between everyone, even though each guest was so different from Andrew Gerza to Melina Williams couldn't be any more different. But then there were so many common themes. And I think we got to a point where we started to think that that the transition could be a transition to love. There was so much trauma that everyone went through. And what if in this season we talked about a more loving world, but applied to kink and non-monogamy and all of that? Mm-hmm. And I, I like the way this is has unfolded because it's unfolded like so many things in life. You know, it's like you start out with a certain intention. Maybe you think things are, are going to go in a certain way. And they went great. I'm not saying, you know, season one was bad, but we realized like, hey, we can go down some different roads and different angles and be flexible and highlight some of these things in different ways. And I think that not only does highlighting things in different ways speak to each of us, you know, we we take in things differently. It speaks to mm, different people, different examples, different angles. It's just more multifaceted and sort of follows the pattern that 
life follows or any endeavor that we embark on follows. So I think it's really organic. I do too. And I think, you know, just as we're talking about this, I think if we talk about the historical context that led to the Open Deeply, it's going to wrap into where we're going in season two, if that makes any sense. Before we even started Open Deeply, you and I just started chatting, like before Mm -hmm. we even knew we wanted to do a podcast. We started, Mm -hmm. you know, it was during the Black Lives Matter marches. It was Trump was still in office. Mm-hmm. You know, Ahmaud Arbery had died. COVID was happening. Mm-hmm. This is what, like 2020, like mid 2020, mid to late 2020 ish. Yeah. 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 You know, it was just like people, I don't know about you, but people around me were getting beat up like Wesley Woods, the porn star was getting, got beat up in its home turf and in, in West Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. like there was so many things that were shutting us down. Anybody mm-hmm. who was different was getting shut down and then COVID was shutting us down. And so I think in a lot of ways, our response to being shut down was being like, oh, oh, hell no, you're not going to shut us down. We're going to open deeply. We're going to like right. tell stories of being really vulnerable and, and realizing that that is actually the solution and, and the rebellion against the forces that were at play, not just Trump, obviously, he's just a figurehead, but, you know, like the 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 terms of services that were shutting down mm-hmm. so many sex educators and, and you know, FOSTA SESA, all these things that were shutting down people that were different. You know, we recreated Open Deeply to be a rebellion against that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and being vulnerable and and just talking and sharing and being authentic and telling the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, that is revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we decided that if we were going to ask people to come on and each person do two episodes, one telling their whole life story, and then the next one us interviewing them with really heavy, not normal interview questions, like my, very much right. deep questions that ask them to even go become more vulnerable if we were going to ask that of them that we better have the ovaries to do it ourselves right Mm -hmm. so so then we did our two bio episodes those were hard (laughs) (laughs) i was like what are we asking people to do wow this is it was it was good yeah but it was hard the anxiety, the unknowing, the like, oh my goodness, I'm going to lay all my stuff out there. And it's like, I'm a very public person. I, you know, talk about anything and everything. There's not much that I hold back, but I really thought about it. And I was like, have I sat anywhere, you know, in public where the world could access everything and laid it all out on the table like that no right you know the person who think i'm so vulnerable and i've told so much about i was like well i guess i really haven't have i <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and and you know yeah and you remember what i went through i mean as a therapist we're always listening we're not the ones spilling our guts like for so for me there was so many concerns i had like i'm you know am i is this the right thing for me to do professionally like so many things. And and honestly, just this is just what popped into my head. I've been listening to Ram Dass a lot. Ram mm-hmm. Dass went through a period where he was he was like, well, I'm this person. I'm supposed to be Zen. I'm supposed to be the calm one that people go to. But inside he knew 
that he was a human, right? Mm-hmm. And that sometimes he got pissy and sometimes he wasn't perfect. And he, he finally realized that in order to actually help people, he did need to be vulnerable. He did need to reveal his imperfections. And even though I just listened to him talk about that now, that is kind of where I came to as I was creating my bio episode. But I'll, you you went through that with me. I dreamed mm-hmm. about it. I rewrote it two million times. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, part of it is we're so used to living in a world where we, what I call we PR ourselves, you know, we're, we're, we're taking the Instagram picture in our house. Well, not, you know, in the corner where our dirty laundry is in the background, we got to make it nice. And I think we don't realize how much effort we go to presenting ourselves in a palatable way. And that is, I think, not great for any of us. We need to be more real. And I think for us, that was a wake-up call, or at least it was for me. I feel like I'm pretty vulnerable and authentic. And and I was like, huh, maybe I am uh, more Instagrammy than I thought. Yeah. 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 Because I think the stuff that you and I reveal, I mean, like not many people are are blessed enough to be as out as we are, you know, Mm -hmm. out as non-monogamous, as kinky, as, you know, pansexual or what have you, you know. So we have a tendency to go, oh, well, we're vulnerable, but not when you're talking about childhood injuries and and things like that. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. so that that's a whole other conversation. So we did that. And then after that, we had on Siri Dahl, um, you know, who is a porn performer and a she's a, a weightlifter and an activist. We had her on. And in some ways, her story was similar, where she got involved with um, more than one man mm-hmm. who overtake in the relationship right. and she overgave in the relationship and and both you and I have been through that in our young adulthood and we were like oh shit we've already got a pattern here <laughs> right yeah yeah it's just it's it was really fascinating to me you know I guess on some level I I know like oh there is a, a common thread that we all share when it comes to processing our trauma or learning in our relationships or learning to respect our boundaries or figure out what our boundaries are. Sure, I, I guess I kind of knew that, but starting with series episode, that was the, I was like, oh no, like I'm getting up close and personal with this pattern. Not oh, just, right. I kind of know it in theory on paper. And I felt that that just started a whole season of like, whoa, you know, seeing something that I thought I knew from a, a completely different light and so many different angles and really seeing the depth in the struggle that we all go through. Yeah. And, and, and certainly it's not always women that are the overgivers. I think, you know, because of patriarchy and gender norms, it, a lot of times it's it, it's women. But mm-hmm. sometimes I run into to men that are overgivers, you know, sometimes because they had a parent that wasn't there for them enough. So they really strove to be the good child. Like, look at me, mom, you know, or that kind right. of thing. So sometimes I see that with men but other genders or what have you but usually it's women and and one thing i you know recently i wrote this this article on narcissistic overtakers within Mm -hmm. consensual non-monogamy and i've noticed that they have 
they had they're they're not just they're not necessarily diagnosable with narcissism, but mm-hmm. they have four of the nine qualities at least, mm-hmm. which is the oppressive manipulation, the entitlement, the demand for admiration, and the lack of empathy. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and you see women get in, involved in that anyway. So so after we did that episode with with Siri, then we decided to do that um, the Overgiver right. episode. Just mm-hmm. to wrap that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So, I, well, I mean, it, it's just one of those things where as a therapist of 18 years, I've just seen this so much. And, you know, the one thing that I would say about overgivers, and I, I use the word overgiver rather than codependent, because to me, codependency never recognizes patriarchy. It never recognizes cultural conditioning or uh, gender norms which Mm -hmm. I think have a massive impact on why women end Mm -hmm. up behaving in quote unquote codependent ways. And and another, another reason I don't like to use the word codependent, it's also wrapped up with, um, you know, drug culture, you know, usually applied to that. And also codependent literature says that the codependent is just as sick as the person they're codependent with. And, and I haven't found that it's like in my own, you know, we've talked about this in my own personal life, there was a a period where I was an overgiver. And once I realized that I changed drastically in the course of a year and felt like I aged 10 years back, you know, 10 years backwards in one year. And so I started working with my clients and just laying it all out for them, like why they're like this, blah, blah, blah. And I watched them change sometimes in weeks hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, with the codependent language and we talked about this in the episode has always bothered me. And it's like I hate the like justice sick uh, verbiage. It's like, what the fuck is that? But it's more maybe just as or not just as but also wounded. You know, it's 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 our way as over givers. It's our way of coping with things, maybe in an unhealthy, maladaptive way, if you really dig down. But it's it's how we operated to get by. And it it gets to the point where it no longer serves us. And sure, I guess you could say that on the flip side, people who are overtakers might be also acting in in some maladaptive coping way as well but i don't know just going where we're both are circles uh, no no (laughs) no yeah i get where you were kind of going with that but then you went off the rails (laughs) yeah well you know throughout this this episode i think i'm going to read a few bell hooks quotes Uh and and this one i think fits in with what we're talking about she says all too often women believe it is a sign of commitment an expression of love to endure unkindness or cruelty to forgive and forget and in actuality when we love rightly we know that the healthy loving response to cruelty and abuse is putting ourselves out of harm's way mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. um yeah i mean the only thing i would say about overtakers is you know i think again a lot of this has to do with conditioning if you watch the mask you live in that covers mm-hmm. a lot of conditioning that impacts men. And I think we can all wake up. Yeah. I think yeah. everybody can wake up. They can, we oh. can all choose to discard this, this, these patterns that have nothing to do with love. Right. And you know, one thing that kind of like gets my goat of the 
societal conversation about, you know, whether it's, you know, narcissists or uh, narcissistic abusers or coercive control, you know, that sort of thing, uh, emotional manipulation is it very much comes off like a, those bad people over there and then us, the good people. And right. it's like, I really look at that on a spectrum. You know, we all have the capability to be emotionally abusive or manipulative. And all of us to one degree or another have been. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the folks and we're, when we're saying, you know, the narcissists or the overtakers or, you know, whatever we're calling them at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, that they've tipped the scales into relying on that behavior and using that behavior habitually to abuse. Yeah. And I think that's important. It's not like they're, you know, sitting at home alone going, how can I be a monster today? Right. <laughs> no. It's they think if you were to ask them, they would feel totally justified in their behavior. To, you know what I mean? It's right. a lot more complex than like, you're the bad guy and you're the good guy. Yeah. I think, uh, and I think I, we all need to dig into that a bit more. That's so important because there's been so many articles and a lot of the articles are written by therapists, you know, right. that paint the narcissist as, as um, just this evil demon. And I know the therapists don't mean it to, or I, this is what I'd like to believe, that they don't mm -hmm. really, they don't realize that some people don't understand that they're talking about the subconscious. Like mm -hmm. therapists almost always are, are, realize that a lot of bad behaviors come from the unconscious and they sometimes forget that people reading what they have written right don't understand that right so most and how it gets interpreted yeah to them it's just like a given and they forget mm -hmm. that people don't know that and so when they read their articles they think the therapist is saying that narcissists are just evil when in actuality most narcissistic behavior unless the person is really far gone a lot of times it's unconscious, you know, right. and, and a lot of times when you're dating somebody that has, you know, these four care, even the four characteristics that I mentioned, which are the worst of the nine mm -hmm. characteristics that you can have, you know, maybe half the time they're great to be around. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, I really, you know, again, I'm going to remind uh, the listeners, I'm not the therapist, so maybe I'm talking out of my butt right now. But this is how I think about it, is that narcissistic behavior, and I'm not talking about like diagnosable, I'm just talking about those traits, you know, right? it's kind of a spectrum. And we all fall on that spectrum. Like sometimes I can act like a petulant, selfish, emotional four-year-old, mm -hmm. even me, you know? Right. <laughs> and... It's, it's something we all struggle with and it's something that's human. And when we talk about folks that are, it's like, yeah, they're tipping the scales. They're, they're, they're moving towards the other end of that spectrum. Um, but yeah, we're, well, it, it, we've it, all it, been there. We, we all will continue to be there at some points or another. And, and let, let's face it, you know, in America and especially in Los Angeles where I am, there's a lot of freaking narcissism. And it makes you think of Carl Jung. Carl Jung used to talk about the shadow self. And, mm -hmm. and some unions will say the way that you can find your shadow self is to find that person that gets on your last nerve. And something about them probably is in you. And that's why they oh, bug yeah. you so much. Yes. You oh, know? my goodness. And so when you look at that at a cultural level, some of the things that bother you the most in our culture, you know, it's like, okay, well, how is that in you? That's a good way to try and find your shadow self sometimes. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes yeah. it bothers us because we know that we have a little bit of that in us, too. Oh, you're right. 
And here I am going, <laughs> I can totally see that in other people, but not myself. Oh, maybe I have some work to do. Anyway. <laughs> sometimes. I mean, not always, but sometimes for sure. Yeah. And, and so then we we uh, ended up having Destin Garrick on. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this was not just random. After having Siri come on and everything that she went through, you know, mostly at the hands of men, we thought, well, let's have on a guy that's like emotionally intelligent that, you know, has made it his life life's work to talk about benevolent masculinity. And, you know, Destin was a pretty easy choice. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it was interesting listening to, especially the juxtaposition of like where he came in in the season. And we had heard a bunch of stories of women, you know, as you said, who were abused largely by the hands of men. And to hear his story really sort of humanized, like, we all have our shit. Right. We all have our trauma. We all are going through things. And, there, you know, there's that common thread again. On the surface, we seem so different, uh, yeah. you know, especially if we're looking at, at this through the patriarchal lens, mm-hmm. you know, that just by gender identity alone, there are certain expectations that are on Destin as he was growing up and being socialized that weren't on us as people who were socialized as women. But to really dig down and be like, oh, yep, there's that common thread. It just looks a little different. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he starts out his episode talking about how he went through basically an identity crisis in his teenage years and his young adult years regarding masculinity because he Mm -hmm. had so many uh, women friends who had told him stories of rape that he he had pretty much completely disowned owned that. And I think at mm-hmm. this point, I'm going to read another Bell Hooks quote. This one is is um, lengthy, but I hope you guys bear with me because it's, it's a pretty amazing quote. The wounded child inside many males is a boy who, when he first spoke his truth, were silenced by paternal sadism, by a patriarchal world that did not want him to claim his true feelings. The wounded child inside many females is a girl who was taught from early childhood that she must become something other than herself to deny her true feelings in order to attract and please others. When, when, when men and women punish each other for truth-telling, we reinforce the notion that lies are better. To be loving, we willingly hear the other's truth. And most important, we affirm the value of truth telling. Lies may make people feel better, but they do not help them to know love. Damn. Boom. Yep. There's my childhood right there. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's like, you know, so many relationships and I just watch, especially male female relationships where they're both in a sense, they're not lying in the traditional sense that we think of, but they're lying in the sense that they're playing these gender norm dances that mm-hmm. require them to disown huge chunks of who they are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, 
That was one of my struggles, a, a huge struggle of mine. And I even talked about it in, in my episode was like, everybody was lying. Every Everybody was lying. And I was actually talking to my adult daughter. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about this stuff. And uh, she had very similar experiences to me as a child. I realized that as a child, I did not trust adults mm-hmm. at all. And mm-hmm. the reason being was, and I don't know, you know, they say like children can just pick up on things. Like we, we haven't been conditioned to like cover up and fool ourselves. We're kind of lay it all out there. Mm-hmm. And I could tell so many adults around me, which is pretty much all adults, you know, on TV, the neighbors, your parents, everybody, they seem to be saying one thing, but being emotionally driven by another yeah. Or I, you know, would then hear the whispers and the, well, don't tell him I did. Blah, 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 blah. And I realized that anytime an adult was telling me something, I couldn't trust them. Anytime an adult, or at least I felt anytime an adult was uh, exerting their authority over me, you know, like little kid, you will do this because I said so. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, you're just on a power trip right now. Like you want to be the parent and have somebody listen to you just because. And even as a little kid, even though maybe I couldn't put words on it then, I was just, I would look at these adults like, wow, that's fucked up. You have some work to do. You're acting like a child. Yeah. (laughs) But really, it's like, oh my goodness, life has conditioned us to grow up and act like adult children. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 a lot of adults teach children to strip away everything that's loving about them. You know, mm-hmm. they we teach little boys, you know, to like like basically in the mask you live in, uh, they talk about how by age thirteen, little you know boys are conditioned to drop out any kind of language that's emotional language, mm-hmm. and it's at that point that their suicide rate skyrockets right so they're literally and and on another note so many uh children you know they're a lot of children have imaginary worlds in their head and adults strip that away too yeah and so we're just stripping away kids resources and then replacing it with a whole bunch of gender norms and Mm -hmm. societal norms that actually again don't have anything to do with love yeah yeah and you know i just realized something um, and, you know, I always I always say, like, you question everything, question the what's supposed to be a given. And I just said that children are actually so intelligent, you know, on that intuitive, emotional level. And then I said, adults grow up and act all a fool and they're acting like children. No, actually, children are acting pretty well emotionally. <laughs> It's yeah. the adults are acting like adults because adults are really one. You know, it, it's bizarre how we think acting like an adult is so great, but actually, in reality, acting like an adult is pretty fucked up. And, and yeah, and, and speaking on that, I think a lot of us we have that moment where we have a you know like, like Destin in his episode, he had that moment where he was out at Burning Man, which for a lot of people is a return to childhood, mm-hmm. you know, and he's out at Burning Man and he fell in love with um, that one woman. I can't remember her name now, mm-hmm. but 
and and he found his ma- his masculinity there. He found his right. creative masculinity, and that's where the creative uh, uh, the erotic rock star was born, right? Mm-hmm. But when he describes that love affair that he had with her, that that was like very much, you know, they they would dance together and and be super sexy, you know, and people would watch, and it was very they enjoyed the voyeuristic atmosphere Mm -hmm. that crowded around them you know but it wasn't just erotic there was when he talked about it there was this how should i put a return to creativity um right uh, and a discovery of healthy masculinity for him Mm -hmm. or a version of of healthy masculinity that evolved later into an even more healthy version of masculinity right Right. but it, it felt like at burning man which is a place where people kind of reclaim their child, their inner child, I think, in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, he, that's where he really started to discover a path that made him feel grounded and, and, and good again. Mm-hmm. You know, where he, he yeah. started to like himself after years of not knowing how to like himself because he was a man and all these men had hurt the women in his life. Right. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I think, you know, that's, that's all our journeys. You know, we have all these things stripped away from us, you know, and we go through this period of, of, of not knowing what to do and re you know, usually recapitulating patterns. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, what I see with a lot of people not to be, I'm going to try not to be too long winded is we have a childhood, unless you have the golden elusive, wonderful childhood, a lot of us have trauma that happens in our childhood. And then we, um, a lot of times in our early years, recapitulate trauma we're like trying to have a healing experience with people that have similar energy to the people that originally hurt us and we're like okay this doesn't work and so maybe then we grow and all of a sudden we're asserting ourselves and and starting you know and and we start to assert ourselves but then we start to feel like that's still we're still dancing with the same energy Mm -hmm. and that moment where you break where you're still asserting yourself of course but where you break from that energy entirely and actually start living your best life. That's the moment that's gold. Mm-hmm. And you that's know? why I love kink because it gives you license to play, you know, to, to be whatever, to drop all of those preconceived notions and all of those supposed to be's and just experiment with yeah. being all sorts of different things in all sorts of different ways. You know, like one of the kink educators I love, her definition of kink is childlike play with adult sexual privilege and better toys. And I'm like, yep, that's it. Yeah. That is so, it. so like Destin's moment was going out to Bernie Man. Your moment was when you discovered kink, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think my moment was a bazillion things that happened after I came out to L.A. <laughs> Let, let's see. Um, and then so then moving on to episode 10, that was with Jiminika, yeah. the trauma queen. Mm-hmm. And I think with Jiminika, we just knew we wanted to have her on. She's such a strong social justice, ad, you know, advocate. She has made her her way um, in a very unique way. I don't mm-hmm. know. How did you feel about her episode? I, episode? I you know, I love Jiminika. And I, I love that there's just something about Jiminika's energy and calmness, knowing 
all of the, the really traumatic things that had gone on, especially in her early life with her, her mother murdered, you know, in front of her, all of that stuff. And she just has this powerful but very calming rational energy and the fact that she's a trauma specialist uh, mm-hmm. there's just you know something about that that whole everything together that makes me go like okay yeah i i just listening to jiminika like i i i can be okay i can be okay <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. and and again mm-hmm. referencing that that ram das um bit that I talked about at the beginning, she's another person that, that also in, embodies that where she's like, I'm a leader. I'm here to, to help you manage your trauma, but I'm not pretending that I'm completely yeah. healed. I'm mm-hmm. still healing. And all these things I'm teaching you are things that I use. And sometimes I still get triggered. You know, she's not pretending to be like this, you know, perfectly fixed human, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. I don't think a perfectly fixed human exists. And I love that she's just so front and center with it. And I also love that, you know, in this day and age, being, and I'm making finger quotes, you can't see me, authentic or vulnerable has kind of become like a catchphrase. And for a lot of folks, it's become sort of performative, you know, like, look at how vulnerable I am. Look at how imperfect I am. And I don't know, to me, maybe because I've been around it, like I can spot like, no, that you're, you're actually being really unauthentic in your authenticity right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know know what I'm saying? You know, all everyone listening knows who I'm talking about. You know, that, that person or that, you know, uh, person on the internet that you watch on Instagram, whoever they are, you know who I'm talking about. Yes. Um, Because they're everywhere. And it's almost like they've turned their, their vulnerability or authenticity into a marketing scheme. Kind of, right. uh, not kind of, for sure. And uh, Jiminika is so not that. And I, I've gotten to the point where I, I hate the word authenticity because of all of this like faux authenticity. But I'm sorry, Jiminika, that is authenticity. That's right. what it's supposed to be. And, and it, it's, we so rarely see it. Yeah. And I think it's always important to wrap back to why is it that all of these leaders are showing their vulnerability and it's it's modeling, breaking down shame. And also, if if leaders always come off and pretend to be perfect, then all it does is make everybody feel more ashamed because they're like, yeah, well, I'm not like this person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, with with now, you know, because it used to be, like, leaders would pretend to be perfect. And now it's being trendy of, like, pretending to be kind of broken, but everybody pretends to be kind of broken in this very perfect, broken way. (laughs) You know, it's like, you didn't understand the assignment. This is not what we were going for. (laughs) Yeah, Look at me, I'm so broken. Look at how I'm being broken. Like, it's like, No. Well, you know, and, and depending on the person, sometimes I have compassion, you know, I'll have to say like, like when I did my bio episode, it's like, okay, how much is too much? How much it's, it's hard to know how to get vulnerability, right? Uh Honestly, Uh you know, like, and I think like us even said, like, I don't know if this is one of those meta moments, but it's like us even saying that the people that even though we're like, oh, you know vulnerability is hard we're still we're the the ones who who uh evangelize i guess being really authentic and really vulnerable and we're still here going 
oh, that shit's hard. <laughs> We're yeah, supposed I mean, to be the professionals. I'll, I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in my in, in my episode, there's there's plenty of things I chose not to tell. You know, mm-hmm. there's plenty of things I chose not to tell. You know, there's yeah, and and so, but I I think that's part of self care. I think mm-hmm. that's also being you know a a good you know, leader of some sort, you know, is, is choosing what you tell people and what you don't tell people, you know, to me, vulnerability is not like emotional vomit. It's not just being like, blah, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially if you're doing it from a leadership position, it's like what part of your story that's vulnerable will help people in some way. Right. You know, it's the intention behind it. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's not just, you know, trauma dumping all of the and making people like completely freaked out. There's, you know, and, and maybe maybe it is kind of following the path of storytelling or plots, that sort of thing that sure, you're, you know, talking about your traumas or whatever it is, but there is, you're bringing the listener who you're telling this to on a journey and you're doing it for a reason. They're going to get some kind of value out of it in the end. Yes. And I think that's really what it's all about. Yeah. And and not only do they get value, like I get value every time I tell my shit, even though at the time it might feel funky and I'm like, oh, this is scary. Uh, not only do the people listening get the value, but I, I get the value every time as well. Yeah. And, and going back to Jiminika specifically, it was, I think it was about when I listened to her episode that I realized that I had some assumption about some of the guests that we brought on, even, even mm-hmm. me, even somebody who's been doing therapy actually 19 years now. I, I had some assumptions about some of the guests that we brought on, you know, because we, we had brought, we were bringing on a lot of social justice activists. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I, I had told myself a story that they would have easier childhoods. And, ah, you know, I, interesting. And, and when we, we started having all these guests that just, you know, like Jiminika starts out the freaking first of her two episodes saying, yeah, I watched my mom get murdered right in front of me when I was, what, three years old, something mm-hmm. like three. And I was like, OK, holy shit. And I started to think about that. Like I started, you know, because I've watched all these. I, I'm fascinated with social justice leaders. So I've watched you know, Malcolm X documentaries, Maya Angelou, you know, I've listened to Oprah's backstory, like all these big leaders and all of them have pretty horrific backstories. And I do have a little bit of a theory that it is the hard backstory that, well, not to, not to thank our perpetrators, but that part of our healing is to make some kind of sense of all of that, like to give some kind of meaning. And sometimes I think that translates to some of our best social justice activists. Yeah. I find that fascinating though, that like that really is a testament to the human propensity for all of us to think the grass is greener, the other person's better. You know what I mean? That, that there's, there's something shiny and heroic in everything else, but us. Right. And then we realize like, Oh my goodness, they're just people too. 
Yeah, I, I don't know why I thought that, because, I mean, you know, being a therapist for 19 years, you know, it, it's funny, monogamous people are like, well, well Kate, the non-monogamous people have the harder backstories, right? And honestly, I, I mean, I know that there's different studies that say different things and everything, but my experience is all kinds right. of different people. We all have a lot of trauma. There's right. not many people that have the golden, shiny childhood. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's the same with like all the studies with kink say this, that people think like, oh, people are kinky because they have the most trauma. Nope. Every single study is like, they're just like everybody else. There's mm. no difference. And yeah, I think, I think we all do have trauma. And I think part of it, the reason we don't think, you know, I'm saying we like collectively as a society or as humans is because we assume that trauma always has to be like this big identifiable thing. Guess what? If you had a childhood where, you know, you lived in a nice house in the suburbs and everything to everybody else seemed great and your mom always had a smile and baked cookies and people on the outside might think, what kind of trauma could you have? But you know what? If you're that kid and every time you're trying to be emotionally vulnerable or to grow or to whatever, and you get shut down by your parents, like minimizing your core emotions and your core self, if that happens to you over and over and over, it's okay. That's really freaking traumatic. Like, right. And I think we've all been emotionally discarded and not validated and minimized and when you're developing as a kid that's traumatic as fuck like I don't care if you live in a mansion yeah or, or even if you you know if we look at um like th this archetype this this type of of child where they grow up in a, a rich household uh super privileged and they are told that their family is the best and that they're the best simply because they were born into that family um, and they're given a, you know, a, a Porsche when they're 18, but they're not given any kind of real love. They're not given any kind of guidance. They're basically told that they're only as good as their last performance. Mm -hmm. They are taught that other people are, you know, if other people struggle, it's because they're lazy. If other people have a trauma happen to them, it's because they wore a short skirt, like that kind of thing. That kind of profile oftentimes builds the narcissist, but at least a white privileged narcissist, mm -hmm. you know, but think about what that childhood is it's a child again it's a childhood with no love mm -hmm. and and to me that's the most devastating thing that's you know a, a childhood where you're taught because you're not taught love and you don't know how to receive it or give it then you end up having to replace it with again the narcissistic supply like right. you know a Porsche or the hot girl or whatever and and you know although that person looks really happy what they don't know that they don't even have is any kind of sense of love. And that's, mm -hmm. that's like the most tragic that that's pretty damn tragic. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because we equate material abundance and financial abundance with emotional abundance, but it's like, no, yeah, maybe that maybe that's on us, you know, for making those assumptions. I mean, but I, I do have to throw in there, not that the, privileged person doesn't have a lot of other shit to work through because of their privilege. But yeah. yeah, you know, as their core individual experience, I'm sure it is tremotionally, uh, emotionally <laughs> traumatic for them. We'll just shorten the word to tremotionally. I like that, tremotionally. <laughs> I think we need to write Webster's. 
Yeah, yeah. Commercially. I think I'm going to use that from now on. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting to think about this. But it, yeah, so, so, and then after that, we had on Baba Tunde, mm-hmm. uh, Ken Boboye. Mm-hmm. And he's interesting because he was, he was one of our only guests that is not linked to either sex education or, or something. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's a Nigerian international opera singer. But his story is so fascinating where, you know, he was born in Nigeria and then he had a super wealthy, um, sounds like a kind of, you know, very entitled kind of dad. And mm-hmm. his mom basically, even though his mom had no resources, she found a way to get first get out of Nigeria and then get relatives to help basically not kidnap, but get pretty much kind of kidnap. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's like, a, you know, it's her own child. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so it's yeah, whatever you call that. But she she found a way to get him out of Nigeria under you know, his dad's nose. And oh, by the way, dad is a security, you know, has his own security agency, like that's known all over Nigeria. Yeah. So it's, it's like the it's, plot to a movie. It is. You like, know, yeah. So <laughs> I could see it painted out with like tense music, you know. Yeah. Just unreal. His dad's whole job was to keep an eye on people. And the fact that his mom was able to do that with almost no financial resources. Mm hmm is amazing and then just his whole journey from a lot of emotional abuse in his childhood and then becoming this this well-known hip-hopera star is uh, amazing but i think one of the things that was that really struck me about his story was um really stuck almost struck me a little bit later when i was reading the book adhd Mm 2.0 and they were talking about how many children uh, are are beaten mm-hmm. uh, that have ADHD because adults think the child is lazy or yeah. or um, a Being bad a smart child. ass on purpose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so they get just um, emotionally abused and physically abused. Yeah, because they have undiagnosed ADHD. I mean, it, that's the ultimate. And, you know, we already talked about a, a lot of people are traumatized in their childhood because they're not getting their emotional needs met. So now imagine if your emotional needs and and oftentimes your your learning needs because you have a learning disability are not being met and all your emotions that surround that and all the confusion because you're undiagnosed. And even sometimes it, when you are diagnosed as a kid, like people still don't get it who are in your life, you know. Right. Um, and then being undiagnosed, that's that's even more confusing because you don't even have an answer for why am I like this? You just think you're broken. Right. Um, that's awful. That's yeah, and, awful. And they, they go on to say that these children grow up to be adults who are very sensitive to criticism to the mm-hmm. extent that it's, how should I put it? That it's way beyond the normal person. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's because of all of this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so basically in the book, they talk about how if you get your child on ADHD meds and get them diagnosed early, it's one of the best things you can do to prevent things like drug abuse, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all kinds, and, it's the best way to avoid them having 
self-esteem issues and all of these other things. And yeah. And in the book, there was this this one story. Anyway, I, when I read it, I cried. And so I got Babatunde to read it and he also cried. And it was just yeah. a story that validated his childhood. It sounded just like his childhood, you know, where wow. he, yeah. he, he talked about being, you know, beaten because he was misunderstood. Anyway, I, I thought Babatunde's two episodes were amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed them. Yeah. And then after that, we had Dr. Kim Talbert who is a professor of Native Studies and an author of a book called Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. Even before she came on, because I'll admit it, I don't personally have a dear close friend that would like show me their underbelly that happens to identify as indigenous. So even Uh before she came on, I asked her, can I pay you to consult with you? Um, Because I knew that I wouldn't be able to have the richness in those two episodes that I wanted to have if I didn't do that. And, you right. know, and so she was nice enough to do that. And she is just a fountain of, to me, for me, it's unique thought being a white person, mm-hmm. uh, even though I, you know, I'm, I've had, you know, I mean, you know me, I, I make a point to really read a lot and watch a lot of documentaries, but most of the stuff I know is more about black social justice issues in United States and Jamaica and, and Africa. I don't know. I didn't know as much about indigenous uh, issues. And, mm-hmm. um, and so her two episodes I've found fascinating, even though I'd watched a ton of her speeches on yeah. YouTube. And, and I think she came at the right time. If we look at the season as a whole, because a lot of what she talked about was, decolonizing, you know, decolonizing our relationship, decolonizing the way we think. And I think a lot of folks that grew up here in America that don't have any other way of, you know, a lot of people like the way we do things is just the way things are. We're not used to stepping back and going, why the fuck are they like that? (laughs) Do they need to be like this? And I think that after hearing so many stories that fell into these patterns of like, well, this is what happens in a, you know, patriarchal capitalistic society, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, to, to listen to Dr. Tallbear really come in and say like, what, why are we doing this way, it this way? Well, because of this and that and this and that, you know, <laughs> and to just kind of deconstruct our faulty logic that we think is the framework of everything. Right. Right. I mean, just for her, she did like truth bombs all through those two episodes. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just going to paraphrase one thing that she talked about. We have a tendency not to think about what happened to the indigenous people in the same way that we think about the Holocaust. Yeah. But 90% of their population was reduced over the course of three to 400 years. Mm-hmm. And perhaps we don't think about it in terms of a genocide. Some some people don't. They don't. They don't level it up to like the Holocaust. Maybe because it did happen over three three hundred or four hundred years, you know. Um, and and that for whatever reason, a lot of Americans don't feel complicit in the way that they should. And she said that your very life might be possible due to this genocide. Yeah. And she she talked about the elim- how white settlers purposely eliminated the bison because they knew that that would eliminate the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And 
purposely damaging salmon in order to damage people that call themselves salmon people. Um, You know, she, she talked about how you, if you decimate non-humans, then you end up decimating humans. Mm -hmm. And she said that that's not consistent with the Eurocentric view of genocide, but it is a way to commit genocide. It absolutely is. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, there's so many reasons why, it's right under our noses and all of us just, you know, we're taught that in school. Oh yeah. And then they had Thanksgiving and okay. They got into a fight and okay. We killed some native Americans, but happy Thanksgiving. Let's make turkeys. Like, no, it's just (laughs) completely washed over. Right. And it was freaking brutal, brutal, just unimaginable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, people have, I, I don't know how to help people build up the muscle to really take in what happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and I just hope that everyone, it, and it is, it does require kind of almost like building up a muscle in a gym, like mm-hmm. building up the emotional strength to take in other people's truth, their, mm-hmm. their intergenerational truth of what happened to them. And, mm-hmm. and again, it's like when we start to be able to take in the intergenerational truth of what has happened to, you know, indigenous people or black people, et cetera, you know, this is how you learn how to love. Right. You know? Yeah. And the, the one thing that she asked, because I was asking her, you know, well, what can us white people do? And she, she said, stop investing in the settler state. She said, nationalism is violent. Mm-hmm. She said, have an allegiance to the planet instead. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought her episodes were really powerful. Yeah. Amazing. And, and then after that, we had on Andrew Gerza, mm-hmm. which was... A, I love Andrew. I know. <laughs> oh, my God. Such a swing. You know, uh, Kim is amazing, but very serious. And then mm-hmm. Andrew is just as impactful but you know he makes you laugh the whole freaking time doesn't he Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you know he's an award-winning disability awareness consultant he came up with the hashtag disability uh disabled people are hot Mm -hmm. and so many other things he he came up with his own sex toy um that i think just launched yeah yeah so excited i i know i haven't i haven't actually seen it have you seen it? Oh, yes. It's it's really cool. It is um, it's a sex toy for people with disabilities who can't grip or whatever. So it's sort of like a as long as your torso would be and you can hug it, hump it. I think is it called bump it. I'm almost positive it's called bump it. And, I'm, you know, you can hump it uh-huh. um, and it holds, you know, whatever toy or sleeve or anything that you have. So if you don't have that mobility and that dexterity, you can just use your body to hug it and use it, which is revolutionary. It's That's- amazing. That is amazing. That yeah. is amazing. I, I think one moment that I liked in, in Andrew's podcast in his episodes was I, I had watched some of his YouTube speeches and mm-hmm. in one of the YouTube speeches, he complained. He says, you know, people always ask me, you know, can you or how do you have sex? And he, and he said very exasperatedly and and kind of in a in a hurt tone that you don't always hear from Andrew. He said, mm-hmm. "Why not ask me 
what is your emotional experience regarding accessing yeah. sex? And so you asked that question. And he was like, oh, shit. You know, I'm... <laughs> Like, why to be asked that? No one's ever asked me that. He was totally knocked off yeah. uh, course a little bit. Yeah. Um, but um, that's when he went into talking about how hard it is, like, j- just getting him set up to have sex, like moving him out of his chair onto a bed, being fearful that he might poop in his pants in the middle of sex you know like right uh, describing himself as a fuckling which i totally robbed and i use that all the time mm-hmm. talking about how because he doesn't have um as many opportunities for sex as somebody's kind to him and pays attention to him he's like a little duckling that imprints on on someone and so he has a tendency to be a fuckling which i think is adorable <laughs> you know anyway i i thought that that question really led to a lot of you know just a lot of beautiful vulnerability on his part mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and you know his conversations not just here on this podcast but all of the conversations that he has whether it's on his own podcast and you know speaking different places youtube videos those are conversations that we just don't hear you know we are so accustomed as a society to infantilizing people who are disabled to not thinking about disabled people as multidimensional who have sex lives, who have, you know, and, and it's freaking awful, but the more that people listen to Andrew or people like Andrew, the more, God, this world would be so much better place. Cause we're kind of assholes when we don't understand stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I think one thing that's really good that this podcast has done, I, I think there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I have a black friend or I have a disabled <sighs> friend. And they're talking about that person they talked to for five minutes at the at the in the coffee room at work or something. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. talking about somebody that really shows them their underbelly in a big right. way. And one thing that we've done on this podcast, it's like everybody who's come on, they have chosen to do the emotional labor to show you their underbelly in the way that usually you would not see unless you were someone's best friend for 10 years. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, I have to jump in and say, even if you're that person who is best friends with that person for 10 years and you know them really well, you still can't say, but I have a black friend. Don't do that. <laughs> right. Don't do that. Yeah. Right. Did I just sound like that? I hope I didn't just sound no, like that. No, no, okay. not at all. Not <laughs> okay. at all. But I just want to reiterate for people, it's like, you know, the more that we connect with other people that aren't like us, the definitely the much better off we are because we get to see, like we said, that those threads that connected us all or to really understand those things that make our experiences different. And, uh, but that's still... You know, it's it's a blessing and a curse, I guess, that mm. still even getting to know somebody that's much different than us, that has completely different life experiences, there's still more to learn, more to know, and a whole lot that no matter how hard we try, we will never know their experience like right. they do. Right, mm-hmm. right. Let's see. And so, and then the next person we had on was Frenchie Davis. Oh, so and... we went from the fuckling to the fucking-ing, right? <laughs> Frenchie had the fucking I love the fucking Yes. <laughs> so, so Frenchie Davis, um, you know, she is a, a singer. You know, she was on American Idol back in the day. She's so wonderfully outspoken on Instagram. 
gosh, how do you describe Frenchie? If you, if you, <sighs> if you, for anyone listening, if you don't know Frenchie, find her on Instagram and just start watching some of her videos and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you'll be hooked. Yeah. Um, but the fucking was after she had her hysterectomy and she was starting to heal and she was ramping up toward, towards having her first big sexual experience after mm-hmm. taking her body back. Yes. And that yeah. whole, she made, <laughs> she made that quite the drama on Instagram. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> She's so much fun to follow on social media, you know, yeah. and, I, and I love, I loved talking to Frenchie and, and learning more about her. Cause you know, Frenchie better than I do. I, you know, we're just acquaintances Yeah, and getting to know her and her story. You know, I, when I think of Frenchie, She's a very powerful presence, you know, and those assumptions that we have, you know, when we think grass is always greener, we see somebody who is that power and that strength. And, you know, at least I say, and I think a lot of us go like, oh, well, they, you know, they're good. They, they, they don't have, and the way Frenchie opened up about the struggles that she's been through and the things that she's overcome, um, the things that she's yet to overcome mm-hmm. that really, it's like, you can be a strong ass person and still have your shit and still get through that shit. You know, again, it was, I hate to, to, to use the same words, but multidimensional, you know, we right. tend to think very like, it, like, you know, black and white, either or you're either strong or you're weak. Vulnerability is weak. It's like, no, Frenchie's vulnerability is strong as fuck. And that's amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's, you know, that whole thing with the getting the hysterectomy that really shook her. That was really hard. I mean, here she is, this person that's been on the Broadway cast of Rent and Dreamgirls and Cinderella Enchanted and Jesus Christ Superstar and, you know, was on the national tour for Ain't Misbehavin' and and she earned a Grammy nomination, like all of these things. And then when she found out she had to get that hysterectomy, man, that Mm -hmm. shook her. And because she's she's always been the strong one, um, you know, how should I put it? I, I think that, you know, that was a really hard time for her, uh-huh. you know, and, um, but I think she shed away a lot of people and a lot of thoughts that did not serve her during that time. I think yeah. it, she started, you know, like a lot of us, we've all gone through a crisis where we found ourselves crawled into the fetal position crying, right? Uh-huh. But then on the other side is a chance to have some kind of, whether you want to call it a spiritual journey, like something that comes out of that. Again, not to thank our pain, but like sometimes that's where the, the beautiful stuff happens. And, and that was, she did such a great job on that episode. It was so organic and so uh-huh. full of heart and spirituality about how she shed away the things that did not serve her. How uh-huh. she started setting boundaries with, you know, overtaker men who did not respect her and how she started to really carve out the kind of men she wanted to have her in her life. And, and, and then, you know, she, she completely manifested that job at Howard university. Yes. You know, where, you know, she was good friends with uh, Chadwick Bosman. Mm-hmm. So they reached out to her after Chadwick died. And 
when in the interview, she said, you know, Chadwick was always fighting for you to reinstate the art program at Howard and you never did it. So now you need to reinstate it. And oh, by the way, you need to hire me. Yep. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and they ended up doing both. Yeah. You know, so this is the kind of stuff that Frenchie's able to manifest, you know? Yeah. It's really, amazing. really impressive person. So next we had on Lenora. And, you know, Lenora is a good friend of mine. She's a survivor of multiple violent crimes. Mm-hmm. And because of her many legislative proposals with Congressman Adam Schiff mm-hmm. um, in order to create um, legislation that would help protect people that are being stalked, people started calling her the Aaron Brockovich of stalking. I believe that first uh, showed up in a Vice article. Right. And I mean, gosh, I could go on about all the different things that she has done. Um, the One of the main things that she hopes to get pushed through is called the Stalking Task Force proposal with Congressman Schiff, mm-hmm. where uh, forensic psychologists at police stations who would be able to do a risk assessment. And if a case is red flagged, you know, a stalking case, then a care team uh, would be dispatched to the home of the person that's being stalked. And they do a risk assessment in the home and also a tech assessment. Um, but she was saying, you know, people aren't, police aren't trained to do this. And so these are the kind of things. And then, then she's also trying to, through her LLC, Lenora Consulting LLC, she is trying to push to have consultants on shows, you know. So if Which Netflix had a show. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'll give the inside scoop. You know, I'll I'll let y'all know these TV producers are ruthless assholes. Right. I mean, they want the story. They want it to be as tragic as, you know, like, it's awful. They don't think, and I'm, you know, of course I'm generalizing it. Maybe I'm being producerist right now, but I mean, that's the culture of, of these producers wanting to get the story out of you, you know, and there really does need to be people like Lenora who are survivors advocates, to mm-hmm. work with these production companies so they're not just like exploiting these people who have already been through so much to like retell their story for the latest crime drama you know weekly show or whatever yeah so uh, yeah i'm just mm. yeah i got a rude awakening when i when i got into tv i was like oh oh the the and i'm not going to be producerist i know some producers are very nice people but it is kind of common in the industry that that sleazy producer trope that you hear there's a reason that's a stereotype and it's awful right i mean yeah. she's talked about how a lot of these um you know crime survivors go on these shows and they're fresh from being um violated in some way and these mm-hmm. producers are just like pushing them to cry like purposely yeah. triggering them it's and awful. there's there's no consultant that's there to try and protect, you know, the crime survivor, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she's doing amazing work. And, you know, I think when we hear all these backstories where so many people have been traumatized, you know, in, in a lot of the past episodes, it, it's nice to hear of super women like Lenora that are fighting the good fight to make change because uh, it does need to come from people like Lenora because our congressmen are not doing anything. Our police mm-hmm. officers are doing very, you know, little to nothing. You know, our legal system is failing us when it comes it's, to this stuff. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It is 
it's a joke. And I think a lot of people don't really realize, like, if you're in a situation, if you're in a domestic violence situation, you're being stalked. And oftentimes, you know, domestic violence situations do turn into stalking as well. It's a joke trying to get a, a it's protective funny order. It's trying joke to joke because that's another problem is the entertainment industry. And everybody always does make stalking a, right. a joke quite literally, you know, right. and people do not. And it's funny, even some of my friends that I've talked to about this and I've said, don't, don't joke about that, this, you know, I'll, they'll still sometimes make jokes. I'm like, ah, you're not listening to me. It's like, you know, Lenora says, uses the uh, comparison to, you know, rape jokes. And usually mm-hmm. when she does that, people stop in their tracks, you know, they're, she's like, it's just, it's just like making a rape joke. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and people I was just stalking your Instagram. Don't say that. Get that out of your language. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. And so so then after Lenora, we were going to have Melina on. And in fact, we recorded her. And then we were like, oh, shit, we need to do <laughs> a couple yeah. of introductions <laughs> to Gink before we have Melina on. And so we did do a couple of introductions because Melina's full toe. Like, right. you know, you, you don't just bring Melina Williams on without doing some kind of introduction to kink. And we forgot to do that, I think, maybe because we're both, you know, I'm a sex-positive therapist, you're a sex educator that specializes in kink. And we just even think about the fact that Open Deeply isn't a kink podcast. It's not a, you know, and so we were just rolling on in with Melina Williams, and then we were like, oh, shit. we (laughs) we People need to know, know, like, what kink is before we... It's a little hilarious that, or, or I don't know what you, word you would use. It's, it's a little uh, interesting that it, we didn't think of that until after the fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then we did those two introductions to kink that you did, which were amazing. And I can tell people by the amount of people that are watching those two episodes, I can tell that people really benefited from both of those. And mm-hmm. you started to teach us some of the things that are in uh, your new upcoming book, especially yes. um, your whole possum mm-hmm. acronym for um, a way to get consent within kink, which is mm-hmm. freaking brilliant and so needed. Your book is going to be a game changer, I believe. Ugh, I hope so. I hope so. It's hard to write a book, but you know, you know how about that. You're further along than I am. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think. Overall, going into Melina's episode, you know, Melina uses kink in her life like I teach kink. And that is not the kink that most people know. Most people know Fifty Shades of Grey or like that, you know, show on Netflix and, you know, put on some leather, get out some whips and chains. Ooh, uh, it hurts so good. And there's there's a whole other side uh, you know, an emotional component to kink. And, you know, as as I say, and I know you say, and we all say kink is never therapy, but it can also be therapeutic. You know, I, I've said sometimes kink allows me to run away from my shit and it's escapism. Yeah. And sometimes kink allows me to deal with my shit in a really creative, fun way that doesn't even feel like I'm confronting some of my own emotional roadblocks it just feels like I'm having fun and then it's like oh wow I actually examined like this power dynamic that you know actually shows up in my real life too and I've kind of worked through it and wow um and that's that's where Melina went with her episodes and she went there to the extreme with some really heavy duty stuff so yeah it was important for us to not only you know like here's what BDSM means but also 
how you can use it in a psychologically fulfilling and healing way. Right. Yeah. I I think so many people not only don't know what BDSM is, but they have an incorrect definition in their head. Like, you know, they've told themselves a story of what it is. And and it's, it's in their mind, it's something maybe closer to abuse when really, I think at its best, a lot of times it's almost like drama therapy. Like I'm an art therapist and Mm -hmm. I can see how BDSM in a way is drama therapy in the sense that you know, you're playing out a drama in a scene. Right. And yeah, it can just be sexy fun, but yeah, it can also be a corrective experience by playing out something. And then, but at the end of the day, you have complete power over it, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whether you're the dumb dumb or the sub. Right. Right. And I love, you know, that going into Melina's episode, because one of the things that Melina wrestled with when she started, I guess, having her kinky inklings, of wanting to be a submissive black woman and to play with white men and to sometimes play out those oppressive racial themes. Like people hear that and they gasp like, what? And when she discovered that was her fantasy, she gasped at herself and she was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? And, you know, her taking us on this journey through her own mental unpacking and unraveling like what was at the root of that and how it actually helped her wrestle with you know themes in her life the racism that she has dealt with the generational trauma you know things she remembers her mother and her grandmother doing or saying and like well that's funny they do that way and uncovering oh my god this is why this is this is how it all fits together and this is how it it, racism and and her ancestors being enslaved and all of these things have impacted her life and the fact that she can examine that oppression within the safe container of kink play and understand herself and her her generational trauma and her family and her you know better yeah that's like whoa that's some heavy stuff i mean obviously i'm a white woman so when i when i look at her situation i can understand it from the standpoint of you know, a lot of women have a ravishment or a rape fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not because they actually want to be raped in real life. In fact, that's, that's their biggest fear. Right. But they're partially drawn to that because for may, maybe many reasons, maybe, and it differs from woman to woman, but maybe it's, um, you know, at the end of the day, they can say no so that maybe they can have a corrective experience or what have you. Um, or Or maybe they like the idea of, you know, the strength of of a man, you know, but again, they can say no, there's all these Mm -hmm. different reasons, but you know, with a black woman, it gets more tricky, doesn't it? You know, but she did such a good, she really did a good job of helping us understand, as you said, how her journey helped her understand intergenerational wounds. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and as she says, at the end of the day, it's all about the consent and, and control, knowing that you can stop this at any time and you have control over how it's going to go, so to speak. And I think that with stories like Melina's, seeing, you know, of course, she's such a great storyteller. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, you know, hearing everything unfold the way it is and seeing that big picture, 
I hope that even folks who are like, but still, me, in my personal life, I could never do that. That would never work for me. Could still say, but I understand for you how you used it and how it helped you. I mean, and that's really what it's all about. You know, none of us are the same. We all come from different points of view. We all have different personal feelings and relationships to to different things or different traumas, et cetera, or reactions to those traumas. But to be able to understand somebody else's experience and to say like, okay, that's not my thing. And that would totally not work for me. But I get you. I get how it works for you. And like, good on you that you figured it out and you're healing with it. And that's at the end of the day, if we could all do that in every situation with every human we come in contact with, that's really what it's all about. Yeah. And, you know, I I told you about, you know, I had a a friend who happens to be black who, who was like, oh no, you know, she, she should just be doing that in private. And I actually asked Melina about that, you know, how to, how you feel about a person who views it that way. And she, she said, you know, yeah, I get that a lot of people feel that way, but there are people just like me who are so tortured in guilt for Mm -hmm. these, these fantasies that they have. And me, you know, she said, I realize that my purpose, and I'm paraphrasing that my purpose is to talk about the hardest stuff, Mm -hmm. to talk about my dark fantasies, to talk about how I used to be a bedwetting alcoholic. And, and by being that brutally transparent, I mean, talking about vulnerability, like it's on a continuum and she's like definitely in the deep end of the pool. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and how many people who have come up to her crying or, or telling her that they've quit drinking because of listening to her speak, you know, like all these people that she's saved because she's willing to talk about these things that might get her, um, ostracized in some way. Right. In her mind, she's, she's, um, you know, that, well, she knows that she has saved a lot of people by doing mm-hmm. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every single day, you know, our, her sharing on social media and every single day. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So let's see. So when we think about, so that, that was our last guest of the season. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about what we set out to do, we set out to be a, like a, a rebellion against all this Trumpiness. Like when, <laughs> when, when, you know, season one started, Trump was still in office and yeah. everything, you know, people were being shut down left, right, right and center. And we had a lot of intentions with, mm-hmm. with this podcast, you know, with this, with season one in terms of creating a format where we brought in a lot of people that normally are not, um, you know, that don't get the mic as much and just showing the common thread between all of us. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you think? Do you think we achieved what we set out? to do? I really do. You know, this, <laughs> That, oh, God, am I going to use the word again? Oh, the season was so dynamic. Um, but it really was. <laughs> it really was. It's like when authenticity ends up becoming unauthentic. If I say dynamic too much, it's going to be like one dimensional. <laughs> yeah. Um, but really, it was. And I think that, you know, moving into season two and and now... It's almost like we took a view, kind of like a, a, a macro view of the overarching frameworks of the human experience. And now for season two, 
it's like we're taking pieces of that and we're going to like drill down to the micro level of those pieces. And I think it very much mimics the conversations that we would have in between these episodes, you know, like if, if the world could be privy to all our WhatsApp, like back and forth recordings, mm-hmm. um, when we'd really dig down and be like, okay, so let's talk, like, what is love? What is love? Oh, no. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> didn't mean to. <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Okay. Anyway, um, but, you know, what is love? What, what, it, what, what does it mean when we're playing with these things in kink? What does it mean if we're in a consensually non-monogamous relationship and and we're having, you know, these emotional experiences with multiple partners? Like we would have those really deep micro level conversations. And I think now bringing that to the, I don't know, public recorded whatever stage and having that those things be a larger conversation is just... I think it's a natural trajectory of where we need to go next. Yeah, well, and I think this is a good time for another Bell Hooks quote, Mm -hmm. where she says, abuse and neglect negate love, care and affirmation. The opposite of abuse, humiliation, are the foundation of love. No one can rightfully claim to be loving when behaving abusively. And, you know, and I think, you know, here we were in season one and we were really just saying to guests, okay, tell us your story from struggle to inspiration, Uh from, you know, the hard times to empowerment. And in my mind, I thought we were going to be mostly talking about all this, you know, inspirational stuff, but we ended up talking about a lot of the hard stuff. And in that, we heard all of these stories where people were saying that they loved them, whether it was parents or whether it was a partner, but it was all mixed up with abuse, Uh you know? And the reason I keep on referencing bell hooks book all about love is that's what she talks about right out of the gate that, um, that for most of us, our parents, abuse a lot of well not most of us but for a lot of us we were abused while our parents concurrently said that they loved us uh-huh. and so that we got it mixed up in our head and we saw this with so many of our guests in their backstory this mixture of being abused while also being told that they were loved and and i i think you know so for us to switch to hearing these traumatic backstories that were mixed that were oftentimes at the hand of someone who said i love you uh-huh. It makes sense to switch to a topic of of saying, OK, well, if that wasn't really what love should be, then what is love? Uh-huh. You know, and and so, you know, part of my intention for the next season is to show what love can look like when it's conscious and grounded and lacking in any form of bigotry or gender norms um, to discuss how to love well within relationships that fall outside of norms like non-monogamy and kinky and neurodiverse relationships. And finally, that half of loving well is setting boundaries. Right. And, you know, and a lot of times we would hear how people, you know, really struggle to find their boundaries well into adulthood. Talking about their boundaries so that we'll be talking about the, the boundaries that we need to set for ourselves in order to increase self-love improve our love relationship with partners and create a healthier connection to society at large, despite Uh challenges like sexism, racism, and the other isms. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. You know, and if we really think about it, you know, like I say a lot, I know you say a lot, and even um, the themes that were in some of Dr. Tallbear's episodes about really stepping back and saying, okay, why is this? You know, question everything. Why do we do things the way we do? Why do we have this collective definition of love that's anything but? Could it be because the people who told us what love was were the ones that were taking advantage of us and abusing. And of course they say, well, love me. It's unconditional. You just have to give of yourself and not be so selfish. Of course, that's what love is. If we were taught that by the people who were taking advantage of that, well, you know what? I think we have things all wrong. So I'm... (laughs) I am looking forward to this next season of, you know, questioning what really is and isn't love. Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, and of course, you know, the people that are giving us an abusive form of love are telling us that we just that telling the person being abused, well, you just need to be more loving. And, you mm-hmm. you know, there, of course, you just over... need to be more of a doormat and give up your boundaries. Right. Everything course... will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the overtaker is going to take that stance when they're talking to the overgiver, Uh-oh. you know. Um, but yeah, so I think that um, the next season is going to be um, really powerful because, again, you know, applying love because there's a lot of books by people like harville hendrix you know like getting the love you want conscious loving etc that are for cis het monogamous people but Mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about all of this stuff for people that are other than that you know for non-monogamous people for kinky people for neurodiverse people you know and who knows what else and and talking about like how do you love well within those realms Uh because we you know people that fall into those realms we don't get uh, enough leaders talking directly to us about how to love well right you know yeah i cannot wait i cannot wait so (laughs) uh we're gonna have to wait a little bit (laughs) because this episode's over and in closing we wanted to let listeners know that over the next few months, we're going to pair things back just a little bit because, you know, as you heard, I'm working on a book and uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. And Kate, your book release is coming up like almost now, right? Tell, tell yeah. us about your book release really quick. My book is coming out on April 19th and it's called Open Deeply. It's a book about conscious, compassionate, open relationships. You can get it for pre-sale right now wherever books are sold. I decided to write it because too many clients that I had had already read the ethical slut and opening up even before their first session with me, uh, but still felt at a loss regarding how to handle escalated arguments or uncomfortable feelings. And still others were struggling with how to handle a mood or a personality disorder that they or a partner were struggling with within non-monogamy. So Open Deeply was created in response to all the unmet needs that come up in my practice but have not been addressed by any other books on non-monogamy that I've seen as of yet. Over the years, I've learned from all the greatest relationship therapists across the globe, um, either by seeing their seminars or reading their books, and I've taken all of that knowledge and funneled it through a non-monogamous lens 
to create a book that explains how attachment theory impacts non-monogamy and how blending cutting-edge neurobiology and form grounding skills with effective communication skills will make even the most challenging conversations regarding non-monogamy manageable. And it covers way much, you know, just way more than that. Finally, I use non-monogamous vignettes to cover every concept. So it's super easy to understand and hopefully really fun to read. I've put a lot of love into this for about five years now, and it's my baby. Yeah, and I love it because it's like, sure, us non-monogamous folks can take the relationship books geared towards monogamy and kind of sort of retrofit them and some of the pieces kind of fit and a lot of the pieces really don't um mm-hmm. so now we have our own book <laughs> <I'm so excited>. <laughs> <laughs> thank yeah. you for that thank you so yeah listeners you know look out for that so we're going to be scaling back as i said we are going to be for the next few months kind of, you know, we'll see what few means as we go. We're going to be releasing one episode a month while we're busy, busy, busy. So those of you who recently started listening to the podcast, now is your opportunity. Go catch up on that back catalog. Go listen to all of these conversations that we've had with our amazing guests. And then you'll be all caught up. So listeners, thank you for being on this journey with us and and future Bins listeners, thank you for about to being on this journey with us. And and Kate, thank you, because this has been a great season. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think this season has been spectacular. Mm-hmm. I think we've had amazing guests and, you know, I, I hope people go back and watch, you know, listen to all the episodes because um, I really haven't run into another podcast like this where people have gone this deep mm-hmm. especially people that are not cis white etc type people you know right there's a lot more diversity here and um yeah i think we created a really amazing up season Yoo-hoo, go us pat <laughs> myself on the back so Listeners, we invite you to join us for our next episode when we get season two, you know, up and running. We are going to kick it off with some great stuff. And of course, when we do that, we will once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes, and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.